This is Pornography as I See It with uh, Dr. Kevin Skinner here with uh, Jill Manning and Dr. Jill Manning and Dr. Shondell Knowlton. Uh, welcome to uh, welcome to our show today. Good morning. Thanks. Great to be here. Hey, you know we we've we've been having a lot of fun. This is actually our fourth class, and it seems like time is just flying for me personally. Uh, you know, as we were ending last time, we were talking. You know, we were talking a lot about how to help individuals in the process of their own individual healing. And, and really, I'm looking forward to what we're going to be talking about today, finding peace in times of trial. I just wondered if there's anything that you wanted to share before we get, we get into this topic. One thing that I thought of that we may have left out when we talked about setting boundaries was the boundaries around alcohol consumption or drinking or drugs with the use of pornography. Very often, if the pornography has gone, what I term, live, if the pornography has turn to strip clubs or visiting places like that or prostitution, there's also drinking involved, which may be a moral issue, another issue for the family. You know, what's interesting with that is we, when you find when you look at pornography addiction or sexual addiction, you often find people who are dealing with multiple addictions, not just a single addiction. Right. And that would and that right. that would be that would be clearly evident in much of the research, especially done by Dr. Carnes. So that's a very good point. And there's another flip side to that too: is the person, the female, in many situations, sometimes she will re-engage. And we mentioned this a little bit last time: she will re-engage in behaviors that she may have struggled with earlier in her life, like an eating disorder. Right. And so you have sometimes multiple things going on, and and really is a good tie-in to where we're going to start today. Today, this is class number four. We're talking about finding peace in times of trial. And and quite frankly, I I don't know if there are many more. Tri- trials than struggling in our relationships with somebody that we maybe felt like we committed to, that we would be committed to each other. And then when you discover pornography or sexual addiction, you all of a sudden realize, you know what, this isn't really what I contracted with. It's not really not what I wanted. Right. So the expectations of, in a relationship have drastically failed. Yeah. And I think that that is part of the mourning process. You have to figure out what are the new, these new expectations and where do I find some semblance of peace inside? Well, I think of people that have gone through natural disasters, you know, where they've lost a home or there's been a fire or just something really devastating has happened. But yet, if your family relationships are solid, you lean on those and there can be constancy even if the whole world around you is going nuts. But when your home base, when your marital relationship is attacked and harmed in this way, it's on such a soul level that it's extremely traumatic and disorienting because your home base has been affected. That place that you normally go for refuge and nurturance is deeply affected and harmed. I think my the message I would give to women is to be so extremely patient with this whole process. That's an excellent point because you are left to work it out also with the person that betrayed you. Right. If you're going to stay in the relationship, eventually the person that betrayed you also has to be able to be the one that can comfort you and help you through it. So it takes exactly. a lot of ego strength or psychological skill or whatever we want to call it to work through that process. And it takes a lot of patience and a lot of time. And one of the things that I have found there that I think is very, very important for the women to understand in this situation is a partner's sexual addiction didn't start with you. And in, in research, we know that it starts before the relationship generally begins in almost every situation. In fact, every situation I have encountered, it has never started in the marital relationship. 
it usually starts in the teenage years yeah, or, it, it starts in, or, or earlier. Or sometimes early childhood. I mean, I could tell you, you know, you guys can tell me the same stories, but children who are exposed to pornography at age four or five or six, before the mind fully understands what's going on, and, and by the time they're teenagers, they have deep-seated addictive behaviors because they started so early. You but, know, this is a case, too, where a lot of people would like to lump this kind of addiction in with affairs, and there's some really important differences that we need to talk about, I think. Traditionally in our field, it has been said that, okay, both partners have something to do with the behaviors that led to the affair, or there's a really a call for accountability, whether it's appropriate or not, to some degree on both sides. I don't happen to personally necessarily agree with that, but that's how the field has been. In this case, like you said, it started before, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the spouse. Yeah. Well, not only started before, but was deeply hidden. The secrecy right. of it, it's yes, it's been a correct. secret for a long time. Now, what's interesting about this, and, and I really want to spend some time here in terms of how these individuals can find peace, because one of the things that we, we say to them is, if you're going to stay in the marriage... Yeah, we've already talked that there's a time frame, and we've talked about that in previous uh, classes. But I really believe it's important to emphasize that the power of the woman inside of herself, the goodness of her, it may feel like it's been attacked, kind of like it's in a war, and it's being constantly bombarded and not knowing where to turn or where to go. But one of the things that I really believe that we need to emphasize is the power of the inner self. And let me explain a little bit about what the point is here. I believe that we are all born with high self-worth. I believe that we are of infinite worth and value. And it is only through life's experiences that we begin to question that value. Sometimes that occurs in childhood. Sometimes that occurs in our teenage years, especially for young women when they go to junior high school, where I believe that that is just a place that just almost attacks that character. Uh, reviving Ophelia comes to mind in that situation, mm-hmm. right? And so as mm-hmm. they get they get older, their perception of self, their body image, having to be skinny, having to look a certain way, is a, almost a direct attack on their individual being. And so we get into this place where we get these women who are now getting married, and where do they sense their value? It, it, it seems to be how they look and how they appear, not who they really are. Well, in a, in a lot of women, more so than men, derive a lot of their sense of self from their significant relationship. And if the relationship is going strong, they feel stronger as a person and of greater worth. When that relationship is threatened in any way, women, more so than men, feel threatened on a very, very personal, deep, deep level that it affects their sense of worth. And that's exactly the point. And realistically, I think our society has built them up for this incredible challenge, especially when they now encounter a spouse dealing with a sexual addiction of saying, man, where did I go wrong? Because there's also this sense of, I must have caused this. I must have created this somehow. And now what do I do? In fact, we received a question from a woman who wants to know what she can do to heal her inner hurts and feelings of betrayal that keep running through her mind. And I think I want to address that. But before we do that, let me just ask this question to you. How would you tell women to reclaim that sense of inner self-worth? Well, you have to assess where they were before this found out. You know, definitely women who have struggled with that before this came out are going to have a tougher time. Women that may have had a stronger sense of self and worth before, it will still be a struggle, but they'll have a base to go back to more readily. So I think it's important to reflect on, okay, well, where was I at and, and how did I feel about myself before this came out? And then how did this affect that as a starting point? We have also talked about after that point, which is crucial, but being educated and what will your mind believe and what will your heart believe? So it's really important to get educated about this and to learn and understand that it is not about you, but it's still a hard convince for the heart. And that's the timing sequence of literally, I believe with time, part of that heals, but I don't believe it really happens unless they get a sense of who they really are. Mm -hmm. 
And this yeah. goes this goes back to that concept. I believe that we were all born with infinite worth. We believe to be treated with dignity and respect. I remember as a boy, and I, I this story is just. It's something that sticks to my life and my mind. I grew up uh, next to my grandpa, and we spent a lot of time together. And grandpa loved my grandma. I mean, he really did. He was, I mean, she died, and he lived about 15, 16 more years after she had died. But when I would go visit him, he would look at me, and I'd be sitting at, literally sitting at his knees listening to him because he could quote poems and he could quote Holy Writ. And it was just one of those things I just, I was privileged to know my grandpa. But one of the things he said to me, and he, he said, the day that they took your grandma out of the house, the day she she died. They took half my heart with them. Mm-hmm. And then he said this, and now, Kevin, you must remember that women are daughters of God and deserve to be treated as such. And he said that to me almost every time he and I visited. It was just reemphasized, reemphasized, and reemphasized into my life and in a loving way. And, and so when he died, I asked my mom and my aunt, I said, when you were growing up, how did grandpa treat grandma? Because I really wanted to understand it. And they said, you know, we never, ever heard your grandfather raise his voice to mother, ever. And he was patient, he was kind, and he actually wrote a song for her titled, My Sweetheart Forever You're Mine. And I look back at that experience, and I think somebody modeled for me the value and the worth of women. And that has stuck to my mind personally, and I think it's something that not only do men need to understand, but women need to know that they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. And they feel totally betrayed in the early points of this. Part of what's important is that they can't depend necessarily on what someone else is going to do, though, to get this inner peace. That's right. Exactly. Because if you try to rely, rely on your spouse to make it better, they're dealing with their own addiction. And to, try, yeah. and to try to heal through their addiction on your own, you really do have to claim a sense of your own worth and value. You know, I have women come in and they say to me, very often, I am completely lost. I don't know where I stand on any issue. I don't know what I like, what I don't like. It's that apple cart turnover that we talked about before. And one of the things that I like to have them do is a very fun intervention. It's a very fun thing to do is just on a piece of paper, start writing things that you know are true about yourself. And at first, these will not be profound at all. There can be little tiny things, like maybe a favorite color, or maybe that they like the mountains, because part of what's happening right now is if they've been traumatized by this, they're judging every single thing about themselves. And so it's hard to write down a truth because they feel like they should or they could about certain things. So they might start with, I like the color of light blue. Or I like the mountains, but they won't get to anything deeper until they come to a point where they can stop themselves, just really accept where they are. Along those same lines, I do something similar in my work with women where, and I believe I may have mentioned this in a previous class, of when there's so much chaos going around you, it's important to identify what the constants are, what are the anchors that remain the same regardless of what kind of rocky water you're on. And so along those same themes, to jot down what are the things that are still the same in my life. It may be a religious grounding or favorite colors or things that from a very little child to now as an adult woman have remained constant. And those are things that will be really important to turn to. You know what's interesting? Another way that that could be done is to write down the five things that they value the most. Because sometimes I think it's easy to forget that when we're in so much pain that we forget the things that matter the most to us because we're just in a state of shock or numbness as we've described in the, in the first class when we were talking about helping people assess really where they're at. 
Absolutely. But part of those five things, the things that matter most to us, are going to be deeply affected right now. So so they do say, I value my relationship with my spouse. That means then that we need to assess this. How is it possible for us to make this better? And what are the boundaries that we talked about last time? What are the specific boundaries I need to have? Because I value this relationship. What do I need to do to at least the things that I can control? Not what he's doing, not what not what they're doing. What are the things that I can control? And sometimes it's a very simple thing, like I can take care of my own self and I can take care, I can go do something for myself. I can realize that I'm a person who is of worth. One of the hardest things that I, I believe that we have as therapists and educators is to give people that inner feeling, their true knowledge of how much value they really are to people. Absolutely. You know, Kevin, you said, what can we do to heal the feelings of betrayal or the constant thoughts? Yeah. Was one of the questions. Yeah. If you want me to I read that. I think this has to become a skill that is absolutely practiced. And it helps if women will act as if, if I were to trust my husband today, how would I behave if we chose to do that today? So, so acting as if I am trusting this person. As if I am trusting him today, because sometimes it has to be a choice. You don't have three years to play detective until the trust really can come back. Yeah, it's not a black or white thing, I mean, is it? You have to do a daily kind of a thing, and you can learn to trust yourself, even if you don't trust what's going on with him, if you can trust yourself, that's very helpful. Can I add another dimension to all of this discussion? That is of meaning. It is very difficult for human beings to suffer if that suffering does not have meaning for them. If it just feels arbitrary and abstract and useless, it's extremely difficult to try to navigate that. But if someone has a sense of the eventual good that could come out of all of this or what, why is this happening, if there's any, even a little bit of a sense of how is this part of my life and moving forward. It can give tremendous direction in the day-to-day use of this. I don't know if, if any of the listeners have read or are aware of the book Women Who Run at the Wolves, but I love the comment that the author makes that tears are a river that take you somewhere. Hmm. And so, you know, one question I would ask women is, where do you think all of this may lead you? You know, at the end of all of this, if we imagine what will come out of the other end, how do you think you'll be different your relationship, your children, your life around you. And just to ask some of those questions that can infuse meaning into it. You know, and Jill, there's one thing I, I want to add to that real quick is when they get online and they take the test that we have created, I've actually asked for the permission of the author of the self-growth inventory. The author of that has given me permission to put that on the web. And so we actually have that as part of the assessment that people take when they take the test to assess what's going on in their life. There's about 21 questions there that actually assesses the self-growth inventory. How do you make meaning of this? And there's 21 great questions there about that. Wonderful. That's very empowering. And it's very empowering while you're going through this to say, how do I want to behave? At the end of the day, whatever my spouse does, am I going to choose empowerment? Am I going to choose trust? Am I going to choose taking care of myself? 
And, you know, when they do, they begin to get strength. And sometimes that is a threat to the spouse because the, the spouse doesn't know how to respond to this new person that is forming around them. But the interesting thing is, is I believe that that creates further change because they see that their spouse is not going to sit there and be in this place where they feel hopeless or helpless. They're standing up and saying, wait a second, we're going to change this relationship right now. We're going to do it. We're going to, it may take us six months. It may take us a year, but we're going to make this relationship better. And I love it when people stand up and say, I'm not going to tolerate this, but I'm willing to stick with you through this and we can make it better, but I'm not going to sit by and not participate in my own self-growth here. May I throw out an idea that may seem strange, but it's something that has worked for some of the women I've worked with, especially those that feel such a lack of self in this, and it's very hard for them to come up with what they value, what they think, Mm -hmm. how they're feeling. Sometimes it's just like a a tidal wave kind of washed out that sense of self temporarily. And so I've had, there's a number of women who have found someone around them, either that they know or someone that's been a celebrity that they've looked up to and have asked themselves, how would that woman respond? Someone that they look up to that has values or or attributes that are admirable or or Christ-like and use it almost like a training wheel. Okay, how would that person respond to this? And I remember one woman, she was not connected to a faith community, and she adored Audrey Hepburn, adored Audrey Hepburn, had books and read and watched all of her films. And she said to me, Jill, if I could handle this in an Audrey kind of way, that would be great. And so I was worried that that may be unrealistic. You know, okay, you're not Audrey Hepburn, but there were just attributes that she had that this woman really looked up to. And so day to day, she'd kind of ask herself, well, how, how would she respond? And she came to one of our sessions and found out that Audrey Hepburn had been a chain smoker, horrible smoker, through her whole career. And it was just so wonderful for her to realize, you know, this woman who was on a pedestal and glamorous and elegant to the T, she too had struggles and anxieties that she coped with in unhealthy ways. And it really normalized this woman's difficulty in coping with a lot of things. And so I just offer that because there may be some people out there listening that think, you know, I don't have a clue where to begin with who I am anymore and what I do believe or how I respond to this. And that may be a creative way of getting some sort of footing until you can reclaim your own. That is so funny because in my practice, I started calling it years ago when the answer was Oprah so much, I started calling it the Oprah intervention. (laughs) 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 Because we have done the same thing, but it gives you something to hold on to when you don't know how to respond. That's right. And what's so interesting is there are so many people that don't know how to respond. To find a model, a role model, somebody that you believe has good qualities, you will still, even in them, you will see faults. And I think that that's part of this. And instead of feeling so, I'm not good enough and I don't measure up to these people, it's realizing that not only do you measure up, but you have the ability to control where you go from here today. And I believe that that's empowering to people who struggle with their sense of identity. Absolutely. Um, One of the things that is helpful with intrusive thoughts, when you just can't quit thinking about things, and it's time. You want to make a change there, and it's time to quit thinking about certain things 24-7, is to externalize them. And I might have clients name, give these intrusive thoughts a name, so they name them Goober or some silly name. But then they can say, oh, that they can identify that the intrusive thoughts are bothering them, but they're going to choose to ignore them and not respond to them. It what? gives them some power over those intrusive kinds of thoughts so that they can start to put them on the shelf and start to have some control and say, well, another, he's pestering me. Another thing, too, is sometimes thoughts become intrusive when we don't allow them to be there. 
Exactly. We're working so hard. I can't think this. I don't want to think this. I go away, go away, go away. It just gives it more power. And so often it can be useful to give yourself permission to really think about it, to kind of let it go for a while. But we need some parameters, some limits around it. So whether that's saying, okay, I give myself full permission to think about this as deeply and as much as I want from 3 to 4.30 every day. Or today, you know, over lunchtime, I'm Mm -hmm. going to, this can just be whatever it's going to be. And then throughout the day when that pops up, you can remind yourself that, okay, right now isn't my time to focus on this. I'm going to do my best to just relegate that to 3 to 4.30 or whatever the time of day that it may be in the evening or first thing in the morning. But there's that blend of permission as well as putting some limits around it. Now, that's hard to do. It's a skill. But just even knowing that idea is available and has worked for many people can be helpful. You know, and I think there's an underlying part here that many people feel guilty that they keep thinking about it or they feel ashamed that they can't get it out of their mind. I should have more self-control. I should be able to get this out of my mind. I should be able to do the things that I normally do. And I can't do any of that anymore because I feel like I, I this is just dominating my mind. The power of what you both are talking about there comes when they, they name it and they identify it. I had one lady name it the runaway train. Mm-hmm. And she said, when the train starts to run away, I just say, okay, there's the runaway train and I see it going off the cliff and it's going to land and it's going to blow up and I'm going to be done for the day. And it's a mindset that says, I, okay, it's running. I see the train running. I see it going because as, as they allow that to go through their mind, they aren't shaming themselves and saying, I shouldn't be thinking about this because sometimes the, the thinking about it is the trap of it. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because just like individual human beings do this, we do this as a culture as well. You think of the Vietnam War. We are still producing movies documentaries. We're still making references to there's so many war veterans who are still grappling and and struggling with this. And so as a culture, that was such a traumatic experience. And I think sometimes it's helpful for people to realize that they're not unique in ruminating and obsessing about very hurtful, traumatic things. Human beings do that by nature when something abnormal and very traumatic happens. And to just normalize it, some of it is needed for the healing and to not shoo it away so quickly. There's going to be medicine and meaning and teaching in the fact why this is so gripping and, and ruminating for a person. You know, there's a very, val- very valuable point with that in the sense of this. Once you understand, at least from my perspective, once you understand that you're not out there on a limb all by yourself, that there are others who have struggled with it, that there are others who still struggle with it. And, and your response, and that's one of the things that I think is so much value of going to a group and listening to other individuals who are dealing with the same, similar thoughts or similar experiences. You come to realize that, you know what, this is, there is some normalcy to this. You might feel like I'm out on the crazy tree, but, but, <laughs> but, but at least I'm out here with a whole lot of other people. You know, <laughs> along, along those lines, one thing that's helpful for clients to know is that some things and some questions you don't get answers to and they don't heal. They wear out. Mm. And it's okay. You know, that, Shonda, that... wear them out. I'm tired of thinking about it. And you get to the point where they might just say, I'm tired of thinking about that. I've thought about this a million times and I'm just tired of it. Do you know, Shandell, that reminds me of that email I sent you uh, about a year and a half ago. And as we were talking about this concept, I have so many people come to my office and they're asking the question, why? Why did he do this? Why, 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 why? And I sit back and my answer to that is, is you will never know the answer to the why. And the reason why is because when we make mistakes, let's call it a sin, we misbehave, whatever you want to call it. When a person misbehaves, sometimes there's no logic to it. 
normally it's justification. How many times have, have we heard a man tell a woman, well, because we weren't having sex enough or because, right. or because you've gained weight or because I've been stressed at work? Which one of those answers comforts the woman? Right. N- none of them do. And so the moment we understand that there is no justification for it, a misbehavior is a misbehavior is a misbehavior. And if you try to and if you can stop asking the question of why, that in of itself can be empowering and saying that misbehavior, that there's a reason for it. And he's going to have to figure out his own misbehavior and the why of it. But in reality, there's no justification for it. And the why of it is what's so can, so difficult for many of the women. In fact, sometimes the why is actually creates more pain than the actual behavior itself. Absolutely. Because it's focused on them. Right. I think too many women will, will say to me, Jill, it wasn't so much the behavior, but it was the lying and the deception that hurts the most, that, that sense of betrayal. And so to just, you know, identify what is the most hurtful piece of this for me? What's the piece I struggle with and have the hardest time coming to terms with? And it's tougher when it just, it's like begging smoke. You don't know where to begin. It's just this abstract, huge mountain sitting on top of you. If you can even just find one little starting point to work on, yeah. it can feel like it's given some parameters. Now I've got a question for you. What, what, what would you recommend to individuals who just can't get the thoughts to stop running through their mind, who are experiencing a lot of anxiety and who are experiencing a lot of depression. What What are your thoughts on, on medication and what has been your experience with medication in helping uh, individuals through this? I've had clients where medication has, I believe, saved the quality of their life, if not their life itself. This can get to be stuck. It can get to be obsessive. It can get to be mental illness if we don't at some point take care of it. And if you're stuck in it, use the help of medication. Use the boost, the brain rest that it gives you to get back on track and to have therapy working. I don't recommend anybody start medication, though, that isn't doing therapy with it. I'd agree. I think medication on its own is not the answer. However, I do fully support women going for medical intervention and and working closely with a doctor they trust to have that support so that therapy and the other self-help efforts they're making can be more effective and improve quality of life to some degree while they're wrestling with this. And it also, you know, I know so many people, and I include myself in this, when you're really wrestling with something, it affects all aspects of your life, including sleep. And if the more, the less sleep you're getting, the less able you are to deal with anything. And so I think whatever it takes to feel supported and if you combine that with good nutrition and self-care practices and therapy and supports, you've got a winning combination for dealing with this as best as you can. You know, and let me explain just something to the listening audience that I think is very important. When the body is under extreme stress, it reduces the amount of serotonin in the system. Just by nature, the body creates serotonin, and the serotonin is what helps you see multiple options. But when our serotonin levels are low, we're less likely to see multiple options. I've seen sometimes individuals who are actually suicidal dealing with their partner's addiction. I mean, just the whole series of sequence of events there have created this situation where a person is suicidal. And sometimes, I believe out of necessity, the medication becomes an absolute necessity to survival. And the Zol- something like Zoloft, which helps with obsessive thoughts, but also helps increase the serotonin levels can actually increase women's ability or the individual's ability to see things in a different way. And, and sometimes it is that that allows us to be more effective even as therapists.
because their their energy levels go up rather than staying in that state where it's very difficult to pull them out of. I would recommend that women, whether they choose to use medication or not, have their physician or their doctor aware yeah. of what's happening. And I think close monitoring there is a very valuable thing. And, you know, I want to emphasize there is absolutely never has been and never will be shame or embarrassment in using that kind of intervention and support. I meet far too many people, especially those who are in faith communities that believe that they should be able to pray this away, will it away, that it's a weakness in their spiritual character if this is present, and and that simply is not true. This is just like if a person was had diabetes that was getting out of control or another physical ailment. It would be irresponsible of us and not self-caring to address that. And it's just, I just want to mention that because I know there's many out there who believe there's something embarrassing or shameful about using mental health supports like that. That's a very, very valid point. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. I, I've got a couple other questions that I'd like to like to pick your brains on real quick and so our listeners can understand. What what do you do? Here, here's a question. What would you recommend if, if an individual's returned to an old habit out of retaliation? I'll just give you an example. Not long ago, I was talking with somebody and they said, well, I used to be a smoker. And now that I've learned my partner's uh, addiction, I'm going to start smoking again. Have oh, you- I would so encourage people to just hang on, to white knuckle if they have to, to hang on, to get some kind of support. Don't start now. If you want to choose that behavior later on, that might be okay. But right now you're having a brainstorm and now is not a good time to go back to habits that you don't really appreciate or haven't appreciated having in your life. I think to add and go along with both of what you were saying, women that I've worked with that have done that, they've resorted to drinking or smoking or overeating, whatever the habit was, what that will lead to is a lack of self-respect and dignity and anger at oneself, that you violated your own boundaries and better judgment. And and that's not what we want to add to this bonfire that's already burning you know, quickly and, and, and fast. We and want, there's also the revenge sexual things. Yeah. I make sure that we talk to women about don't get on porn sites and see what he's been looking at. You don't need those images in your head and you don't need an addiction because it can happen to females too. That's That's true. Definitely. And this is the time. It's so hard and it's counterintuitive that this is going to be what's needed, but to really do our best to be our best selves. And that's counterintuitive because we feel like our worst selves when we're going through something like this because it's just so hard. But to really, you know, how can we get through this to be able to put our head on our pillow at night and feel good at least about how we are conducting ourselves? And we also need as much spiritual strength as we can garner right now. And doing those things that will go against values and our best self will diminish that capacity to feel spiritually strong in the face of this. You know, there's such an important part there, the spiritual component, because most most people, in particular the women that I work with, they are incredibly spiritual people. I mean, they're just very in tune. And then they have an experience like this, and I think it's very important for us to address this. Then they feel like, all of a sudden, I can't receive these these spiritual feelings or promptings. What is wrong with me? Why can't I get these? Have I been abandoned by God? Have I been abandoned? And, and what I want to normalize here is when you are feeling depressed, it's not uncommon to struggle with what you are feeling and what spiritual feelings or promptings things you do receive. And sometimes that comes with stepping back out of the experience and looking at it from an outsider's perspective and saying, okay, I understand why I'm feeling the way I am. And little
literally pondering and meditating and writing down the thoughts and impressions that come to your mind of how to healthily respond to this. Hey, just real quick, you know, we're talking about finding peace in times of trial. And I just want to review a couple of things that we've already addressed in previous classes, but I just think it's important for us to reemphasize these. First of all, a key strategy for maintaining quote unquote sanity is you need to assess where you're at and you can go online and do the test that we've written. The next part is to understand that what you're feeling is normal. It's normal to feel sad, depressed, anxious, over worried, numb, angry. Those are normal feelings. Now the question is, is I'm experiencing these emotions. What can I do about them? How do I get over them? How do I proceed forward? The next is to seek outside help. Doing this alone is not ever advisable. If you have to talk with the parishioner, a religious leader, a close friend who you can trust, a family member, to do so is very, very important. I know so many people who say, I'll just deal with this on my own, and their healing always takes longer. Well, and some people, Kevin, it concerns me that some people are told by well-intentioned people that they should do this on their own not to talk to other people about it because it would be too shaming or embarrassing for them or the partner. That's a ticket for disaster. Isolation never, ever works in my experience. Right. You have to have social support. And sometimes the spouse will say, well, you can't tell anybody about this. That all by itself will prevent healing, both directions. Silencing is is deadly with us. You can't do that. You know, I've heard, too, that warts go away on their own. You know, if you just leave a wart alone, (laughs) it'll eventually heal itself. And I think, well, why would I do that? Why would I do that when I know there's good effective treatments we could deal with that so much sooner and even with depression we know that there is a natural course of depression if depression's left untreated it can take 9 to 12 months to naturally begin to lift but why would we do that why would we suffer and deal with this ugly ward on our hand well and have it affect so many areas of your life Exactly. We want people to find meaning in this and have this eventually come back for their good. But we don't want people to unnecessarily be struggling and in the trenches alone. And I think I agree completely. Isolation and being silenced in this is not the way to go. It's dangerous, I would say. At the same time, we need to be discreet and careful with who we share this to. You don't want to put a billboard uh, up on that? families, but to find those people that we trust and that have some expertise with this is critical. You don't recommend a billboard? Expertise with this. No, but it's, it can be tempting. You know, that, <laughs> revenge that revenge can be pretty strong. I actually joke with some women who are just wanting to shout it to the rooftops and, and because they're so frustrated. And I say, well, you could get a billboard. And it kind of lightens the mode. But but the point is, is you know, you do need to seek outside help, but you have to be, you have to be cautious because that too could ruin your relationship. Because there are some people who will literally say, well, if they're dealing with this, you need to leave right now and you need to do this and you need to do that. And they're getting counsel and advice from people who are preaching rather than listening and trying to understand. And I think finding someone who genuinely understands, that's why a professional counselor who works with this could be very valuable. And I want to mention a resource real quick. If you're struggling with this, and I don't care where you live in the United States of America, Canada, if you type up www.sash S-A-S-H dot net, you can find professional therapists who are trained specifically in working with sexual addictions. And there are therapists in every state who are members of the SASH um, Society for Advancement of Sexual Health who are specifically deal with sexual addictions and treatment thereof. And I would recommend that. And for people not to be afraid, I mean, just like lawyers, physicians, therapists, they're not all equal. There's going to be some that are very good, some that aren't so good. And so I think it's important for women to realize that they're the consumer in this and they have every right to ask lots of questions and to ask a therapist 
are you willing to be respectful of my religious beliefs and, and my values, or at least ask me questions about those, and, and we can decide together how to proceed, that they don't need to feel powerless in seeking professional help. It's not a good fit. Find someone else. Exactly. Do exactly. not quit. You make sure that you are feeling good about the way you work with a physician or a therapist or you know, attorney, like you said, and make it fit. And I had a, I had a woman just recently that just really highlights what you guys are talking about here who came to me and she said, I went to this other therapist who said that my husband viewing pornography is normal and that I should just deal with it because it's really not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And that so discounted the trauma that she had experienced. It just frustrates me to death when people try to normalize pornography and say that, you know, everybody's doing it or whatever. But what you're not taking into account is this hurts this woman. This hurts this relationship. And if right. you're if you're not willing to deal with that as a therapist, you go find a therapist who will. Mm-hmm. Because there are plenty out there who are trained and specifically deal with this on a daily and a regular basis. And, and to ask people before you even go, you know, what's your stance on pornography? What's your view of how that impacts relationships? Just ask some good lead questions. Very, very, very important conversation that we're having. I, I just can't emphasize enough. There are people out there who are very good and understand how this how pornography and sexual addiction occur. But some people don't even believe in sexual addiction. Right. That floors me, especially based upon the research that we have. I mean, addiction, clearly sexual addiction is real. So, all right, there's a couple things. We've got about 10 minutes left in this class, Finding Peace in Times of Trial. And I want to ask a couple questions. Have you experienced people who have tried to change their body to be good enough for their spouse because of the addiction? I want to address this real quick because I believe that dramatic changes to the body breast implantation can really hurt the people in the long run because they're trying to fix something that isn't the real issue. Definitely. Definitely. I, I've come across that often, either eating disorder, behavior, extreme dieting, exercise, making really drastic changes to the body. And the ones with cosmetic surgery are particularly concerning because if it's done with that intention, it's often rushed and they don't research a plastic surgeon carefully enough as they would if it was being done in a more calm manner. And I've encountered women who then have complications from those surgeries because they weren't done well and it just wreaks havoc. Psychologically, I think it wreaks havoc too, especially if it's something done for that purpose because it's not going to work. And then the partner is also often blamed for the pain or for the outcome. Right. It's not done for self. Well, and it's a very, um, if we think of this, it's a pornified response. Yes. Yes. It's in essence, the woman saying, yeah, the porn industry and all that it stands for is good enough for me so good that I'm going to adopt it in my own life and make changes so that I can look more like a porn star rather than a daughter of God who understands she's a daughter of God. So women need to think very carefully about what they are endorsing when they do those kinds of things because it enables, it says, it gives the message, this is okay, this behavior and this kind of look is worthy of me engaging in. And then there's a feeling possibly of competition for a lifetime, which doesn't go well with aging and growth and relationship development. You know, if a person has to change to feel like they're going to be accepted in the relationship, we really need to look at the relationship and not changing a body part or changing body parts to to look a certain way. Yeah, and we need to concentrate first. This is really important for women to understand is that we concentrate first on the individual healing because without individual healing, the relationship's not going to work anyway. That's right. And you know what's so interesting? When women get strength and they start forming that inner sense of confidence and worth, it is so amazing how much that creates change in the relationship. 
I, I've seen so many women as they get stronger, they begin to say things that maybe they wouldn't have dared say earlier in the relationship. They start to expect or desire things that they wouldn't have talked about early in the relationship. And as they do that, it's so exciting to watch because then their partner has to sit back and have say, to deal with it. They have to, yeah, they have to yeah. deal with it. And for so long, in many instances, they've just been ran over rather than standing up and saying, wait a second, I'm a partner here and I deserve yeah. to be treated that way. And unitedly, that's how we have healthy relationships. You never have a healthy relationship when you've got one person who's domineering and dominating and the other person who is sitting there cowering down or not having a voice. And, and I'm not talking being overly aggressive. I'm talking doing it with love. It reminds me of this story that I was working with this couple that they were dealing with some, some sexual difficulties. I mean, he had acted out and so forth. And she, in the most incredible way, she took a stand. And I, I just, I admire her to death. And she allow, has allowed me to share this story. But here's what she said. You know what? I was willing to let my husband go. And I had gotten to the point where I realized I could either love him to death or I could shame him to death and get him out of my life. And she said, I, I chose to love him to death, but to take a stand. And, I, and she said one night when they were trying to decide whether they were going to stay together, she said, I love you, but I will not ever, ever tolerate this behavior in our marriage. And you can walk out the door right now, but if you're going to walk out, you need to know that I love you. And you know what? He His heart changed that night in a dramatic way. He said, for the first time in my entire life, I felt loved. And, she's, and she couldn't understand that. She said, I'd done everything to take, I mean, multiple, they've had children. And I mean, just, they'd had so many things. But she said to him in that, just that loving way, I love you. And he said, for the very first time in my life, I felt loved. Wow. And I wonder how many of these people struggling with addiction have never, ever felt genuinely loved. And it may work. I don't want to be the naysayer here, but we're acting as if everyone wants to save the relationship after this or can, right? And And that's not necessarily true. We support women in the same kinds of things should they decide to not have the relationship. And sometimes out of necessity, they have to. You're yes. ab- abso- absolutely right. Sometimes sometimes you can love a person to death and they still will not respond. I tell my clients, you have a ticket out. You get to choose whether to use it. <laughs> yeah. You you get to decide. So but you don't have to hurry and cash it in. Yep. Nobody and will blame you. And sometimes there's a lot of societal pressure to leave the relationship. Right. And, and that may not be what they want. That's right. All right, real quick, we've got it. We've got about four four minutes, and I want to just real quick. I wanted to get your final thoughts on what would you recommend if a woman comes and sits in your office and she says to you, "I want to find peace again in my life." Can you give me some specific things that will help me find this peace? Can I get your feedback on that in the next couple minutes? Do what brings you peace. And what if I don't know? What things in the past have brought you peace? This is a good time for renewing those and making sure those are part of your life. If it's listening to music, if it's meditation, if it's being in a crowd, I mean, whatever it is, start doing the things that have brought you peace before. And I would offer how necessary it is to be patient, Mm -hmm. that it will take time for peace to come into your life again. It's a massive hurt and betrayal and disorienting experience. And to be extremely patient, it's a process. It's a long process. It can be years in the making before people really feel solid and centered again. And and I would I would add to this in, in finding peace really in my experience what it takes is for them to reclaim their life and, and identify who they are and where they want to go. Sometimes that is in the relationship. Sometimes that is not in the relationship. But finding the inner peace is realizing that you can take charge of your life rather than feel like you can't control what your spouse is doing 
obviously you can't control them. So you've got to take care of what you can internally. And I have seen and experienced women who begin to do this and their lights, their excitement come back on and they begin to have hope again, realizing that, you know what, whether my partner changes or not, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to find it. And then they begin to live consistently with who they really are. Incredible. To be proactive about it. Incredible mm-hmm. people. And I tell every woman who sits in my office, I admire you for what you're going through. I really do. And I know it's not going to be easy, but I want you to know that I believe in you. Yes. And, and that's just a core part of me as a therapist. I believe that people have every ability to be happy and find joy, even in trial. Because I've, I have seen over and over people who are so resilient, so powerful. And when they realize who they really are and their potential, man, it's so much fun to watch. All right. We've got about a minute and a half left. Any, any final thoughts as we conclude finding peace in times of trial? One thing that I like to do to talk to my clients is about is the goal eventually is that this becomes irrelevant in their daily lives. And that's hard for them to see, but it also gives them hope. It's like when I was in first grade, I got a broken arm and it hurt a lot and it was horribly painful and frightening. Um, It was a massive break. Anyway, I don't spend time today thinking about how awful that was. It really can heal and become, you remember it happened, but life can improve enough and you can have a place where it's fairly irrelevant to your daily life. All right. Any final thoughts, Jill, before we before we conclude this class? No, not right now. All right. So when we come back, we're in the next class, class five. Let me just really quickly outline what we're going to be talking about. In class five, we're going to be talking about your relationship. And the assumption here is that whether you stay or go, we're going to be talking about your relationship. Now, what do you do? You've discovered your partner's sexual addiction, their pornography addiction. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? So in class five, we will be talking about your relationship. Now, what? Thank you for joining us for class four of Finding Peace in Times of Trial. 